millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have our good friend, Brian Feraldi back. Brian is a wizard at Twitter as well as YouTube. He's a really smart guy. He's a lot of fun to talk to, and he really brings the energy. So we're going to talk about stocks and all kinds of other fun stuff today. So Brian, thank you for coming and joining us again for the show. This is the third time. So you are rapidly ascending the list as one of our all-time great list guests to have on the show and uh, we really enjoy having you here. We appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us. So I thought maybe we could start off talking about some great tweets that you had recently that I've really enjoyed. And one was you talked about the six free sources of earnings and how to listen to earnings. You talked about the importance of those and everything. And so maybe I thought we could kind of start off by talking about that because we're kind of in the midst of earnings season. Uh, hi, Dave. Hi, Andrew. Thank you guys so much for having me back. Love to be the third time guest here. Hope to get more appearances in the future. Uh, yeah, so we are in the middle of a pretty hectic earnings season period right now. And if you invest individual companies the way that I do, it's really important to keep tabs on the companies that you're owning and investing in. There are a huge number of tools out there that investors can use uh, to watch company uh, earnings, and they make it really, really simple uh, to do so. So to your point, I recently did a tweet storm where I kind of pointed out a couple of my go-to uh, resources. And the cool thing is, basically, all of these are free in some way to use. So one that I've become really impressed with recently is an app called Quarter. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. What that is, is an aggregator of like earnings calls from thousands of publicly traded companies. And they also have analyst estimates on there. They have transcripts on there. But the really cool thing about them 
is that you can, one, listen to them on the go, but two, you can fast forward calls, you can rewind calls, you can like skip ahead, you can 2x speed calls. So it basically makes listening to an earnings call as easy as it is to listen to a podcast. So for some companies that I follow, not all, I find it's a lot of, it's really important to actually listen to the call as opposed to just reading the transcript from it. So that's a great uh, resource to go through there. Another one that I use uh, pretty heavily to get actual earnings uh, information and data, and it's probably the best layout that I've seen online is a company called Ticker. That's T-I-K-R. They have years of financial data. They have transcripts of earnings calls and more. What I really like about them is when you're looking at an income statement, for example, they standardize it and they calculate all the margins and all the growth rates for you right in the app. So if you've ever reviewed a few different companies' income statements before, there's no standardization to it at all. Uh, Some of them calculate margins uh, for you, others don't. Some of them show the growth rate year over year, others don't. So by using an aggregator like uh, Ticker, it makes it really easy to see all those numbers, growth rates and margins. And the third one I'll call out is Seeking Alpha. They probably have the best uh, data that I've seen on coming up with uh, earnings estimates, as well as uh, both short-term and long-term uh, earnings history uh, histories for companies. So those three tools right there will get you 95% of the way there. Yeah, those are awesome. I'm a huge fan of Quarter. I literally probably use it almost every single day. I It's invaluable. And for those of us who have been doing this for a long time, you know, the dinosaurs, it's amazing how far this technology has come you know, even in just in a few years, a few years ago, trying to listen to earnings calls was kind of a tedious task. And now it's, it's as easy as, like you said, listening to a podcast. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing is, you know, all earnings calls have that standard like language up front where they're reading like mm-hmm. a legal uh, disclosure. It's nice to just skip forward to that. I'm interested, <laughs> just skip right through the, uh, the Q&A if that's what you're looking for. Or just even if you're ever doing them on your phone, sometimes you have to go to the company's investor relations webpage and then pick through the events and then play <laughs> it and right. register. You just skip all that nonsense with Quarter. Yeah, it's awesome. And they recently started doing live earnings calls as well, which is fun. But if you're used to listening to them at two times speed, they seem like they're talking in mud because they're so slow and you can't also can't fast forward, obviously. But yeah, those are great apps. I, the one that I like the most is Stratosphere. Braden Dennis is, is a friend of ours. We love his website and we use that, that all the time. That, that's a great one that I would guess I would add to your list and everything. But so why, why the importance of earnings? Why should investors, especially newer investors, pay attention to earnings. Well, the reason that you are investing in a company is to hopefully have that company produce higher revenue, higher profits over time, and that will translate into shareholder value. But businesses are not static things. Businesses are always uh, changing. And the price we pay for investing in individual stocks is the need to perpetually keep up with what's happening with companies. In today's age, it's never been easier to get quote unquote information on a company. And there are articles that are put out all the time about the opinion pieces on companies. If that's what you look at, it's very easy to see some of that information and draw the wrong conclusions. I think that that a whole bunch of that information that's out there is essentially just pure noise and people confuse it as signal. When I think about the actual earnings releases that come out of companies and the transcripts from calls from management, that to me is the purest form of signal that there is. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You look like you did. Um, yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And I think one of the things that I, I guess a question that pops into my head when you're, when you're talking about that, like, do you follow when you're looking at earnings calls? I'm trying to think of a new investor. Would do you focus mainly on the companies that you own currently, or do you focus on the companies you want to own or do you both? So I own about 70 stocks. So that is plenty to keep up with there right right now. So I am intensely focused on the companies that I own. Very rarely do I look at the, the earnings or pay that much attention to the earnings of a company that I don't own. Now, I saw your face kind of looking shocked there when I said the number of stocks that, that I own. So I guess it requires some further explanation. A lot of my capital is actually fairly concentrated into my top 10 holdings. That's not because I set out and picked those companies to be my top holdings. It's because I've bought those stocks so long ago and those stocks did so well that they essentially became my top holdings. And not all companies require the same level of scrutiny when I'm looking at their earnings as others. Uh, For example, a company that I've owned for almost a decade now is MasterCard. It's one of my top holdings. It is just a cash creation machine, and it has a fantastic fantastic operating history. I know that business have investing in there for so long that when I look at their earnings report, I basically want to know, did revenue grow? Did profits grow? And were buybacks and uh, dividends there? The answer is almost always yes, yes, yes. And for me, I can look at that pretty quickly and say, see it in 90 days. The, like Reviewing the earnings on that story is not that hard. So that is a really quick thing to do. On the other side of the spectrum, I own some companies that are very small market caps where the range of potential outcomes just could not be wider. And literally every 90 days significantly impacts what's going to happen with that business. So for those companies, I go over their earnings report with a much finer uh, tooth comb. And the other thing that I do to protect myself is I also keep my position sizes in check. If I get interested in a stock and I buy very small starter position in that company and that company goes down, my overall net worth is not really impacted uh, that much. So when it comes to where do I focus my attention, I tend to focus on uh, the companies that I have the most capital in and the companies that require most maintenance. Some of them, as I said before, I can just quickly glance at, or I don't even have to look at the numbers quarterly. I'm going to come in like a wrecking ball here, uh, just because I'm like (laughs) curious and I like to do sometimes like hypotheticals. So is there like an upper limit? You mentioned position sizes. And you mentioned like a top 10 concentration. Is there some upper limit to how concentrated you would let a position get? Or, you know, if MasterCard becomes like 60% of your portfolio without making you nervous at all? Well, that's what you call a high quality problem. Uh, if, if, <laughs> yeah. that was to, if that was to happen, right? Because that would mean that MasterCard have to be up so much that I would have to make uh, decisions. Broadly speaking, the way that I approach that is uh, I ask myself at what number would a company cause me to lose sleep at night? If I had to have one position that was just like crazy outsized, a company like MasterCard would be one of my top choices, just because I think that that company is so entrenched, so profitable, and that if it was to get disrupted, that process would play out over a period of years or even uh, decades. I can't envision something coming wrong, aside from the, um, the government saying this business is illegal. That would like really impact the thesis for that company in a way. 
So I could personally get comfortable with MasterCard being something like 15 or even 20% of my portfolio if it grew into that uh, number. Uh, conversely, if I took a 1% position in a really small, dynamic, uh, fast-growing, super risky company, I got lucky in that company like 20 bagged over the course of a year, that would be a completely different situation where I wouldn't want that much of my net worth into a hyper, a really risky company. So I would be more willing to trim that and I would keep that abound like an upper limit of say 10% or so. However, the thing that I think a lot of people lose when they talk purely in percentages is it's easy for us to talk in percentages because we can relate portfolios together, but the absolute dollar value also really, really matters. If my entire portfolio was, let's just say $10,000, I'd be comfortable with having 50% of it in one stock because that's $5,000. Conversely, if I had a portfolio of $10 million, right? A 10% position would be a million dollars in one company. So when it comes to figuring out what the upper limit would be, I would factor in both things. As a finance nerd, you would assume that I have my money game all together. Well, shocker, I didn't until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app, more so than my bank because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things I want to do. Is my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint and keep all of your tags and categories. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product. They release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that makes that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It makes a lot of sense. I guess it shows what kind of stomach Warren Buffett has when he has uh, Apple as that size of position in his portfolio, right? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. And again, he he's uh, Apple became that monstrous position. Yes, he put a ton of capital into it. But I think it's like, less, what was it, four bagger for him or something or five bagger for him. Yeah. So he really nailed the, the timing on Apple really well. But yeah, obviously, he's very comfortable with much higher levels of concentration than I am. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I guess a question I have too about portfolios. What are your thoughts on this idea of a starter position, so to speak? Let's say that you're interested in a company that picked 
you know, company B and you want to start investing in a company, but you don't want to take a big position, but you also don't know that much about the company. And so what are your thoughts on that kind of idea putting, you know, a less than half, like less than a percent in, you know, of your portfolio in a company to force yourself having skin in the game to start learning more about the company? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it totally depends on the size and maturity scale of the business and risk of the business, or at least my perception of the business at the time of of an entry. Let me give you an example. I don't own shares in Microsoft directly, okay? If I was to decide I want to open up a starter position in Microsoft, I mean, that's like, what, a $2 trillion company. It cranks out free cash flow. It's got a ridiculously dependable business. I would have no problem opening up a starter position at like 3% in Microsoft in my case, just because it's so, it's a very low risk of business. Uh, conversely, I was opening up a starter position in a sub $1 billion, high growth, money losing business, some of which I do own. I keep my starter position size much smaller for two reasons. One, I want to cap my downside risk, but the range of potential outcomes for that business are just so incredibly wide. When you think about Microsoft, what is like the best case scenario for Microsoft, or at least the most likely scenario for Microsoft? I think if you buy Microsoft, you can expect 8 to 15% return uh, going forward. Something like that would be in the realm of possibility. I don't think you're going to get a 10 bagger on Microsoft in the next five years, 10 years, or maybe even 20 years. Just the range of potential outcomes for investors are much more skewed. But if you bought a profit, a revenueless biotech or hyper growth stock that was growing 100% per year, but had a really small market cap, the range of potential outcomes are you could make 50 extra money or you could lose 99.9% of your capital. But when I make my first buy, as you said, get some skim in the game. I typically allocate less than 1% of my portfolio to that company because I'm still getting to know that business, but I've seen enough that I'm interested in making a small investment. And then I'm happy to add to that investment over time as I see the thesis playing out, as the risk uh, goes down, and as I get to know that company better. I guess one example of that would be if it's unprofitable, it becomes profitable. All of a sudden, the risks profile has changed. So maybe that changes the way you're doing portfolio allocation. And I get the sense that just your idea of portfolio allocation in general isn't some static thing, kind of like the businesses you're looking at. It sounds to me like those allocations can be a little bit fluid depending on whatever the situation is. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that that's completely fair. And the other thing that I've learned the hard way is what I think is going to happen and what actually happens are usually two completely <laughs> uh, different two completely different things. I mean, in the past, I have been historically 100% certain, convinced myself that this company is going up. Like I have told myself that about businesses many times and many times on those businesses that I was certain of, I lost 50 plus percent of my capital. So when that happens to you enough times, it's much, it, you get humbled really fast with investing. And because of that, one, I diversify more widely than I did before. And then two, I keep my position sizing, uh, my initial position sizing smaller. And I allow companies to earn a higher allocation in my portfolio through their own business execution, as opposed to me putting more and more capital into them. That's brilliant. Where did you learn that concept? School of hard knocks. <laughs> uh, I would say a combination of trial and error with my own capital and then learning from other investors who are more experienced than I have who have seen that happen themselves. What's that money? That saying, I think it's like, don't throw good money after bad. And it kind of goes to one of the biases. And I don't know if we touched on this recently, Dave, but 
we had an episode recently where we talked about different common investor biases. So if you're a new investor, you might find that really useful in helping yourself kind of learn how to handle yourself in the market and find better results. One of those being the sunk cost fallacy, where you feel like if I have a stock and I've put $1,000 into it, well, you know, I'm in it for the long haul now. And it's like, it's hard for investors to remove themselves from, well, I'm just going to wait for this to get back to even, or I'm going to double down because it's kind of a hit to your ego if you're wrong. And so it's sometimes kind of easier to just throw money, throw more money at the problem in the hope that it goes up. Have you done that before where you kind of threw good money after a bad situation and looking at hindsight, it was kind of like a sunk cost kind of deal? Absolutely. If you, when you learn about the dozens of investing biases that out there, I mean, I read through those and I'm like, yup, I've done that. Yup, I've done that. Yup, I've done, I've done that. And so many of them you are unaware of until somebody else points them out. And it's like, wow, yes, that just goes so that, that just lines up so perfectly uh, with my natural uh, human psychology. Investing is hard. Investing is really, uh, really, really hard. One thing that makes investing super hard is that there is often a multi-year gap between you taking an action and you learning about if that action was the right one or the wrong one. And in between that time frame, you get tons of false signals and false information. And I would say that particularly the last three years have been the weirdest investing years that I've ever seen. I mean, think back to 2020, which is when a lot of people started investing for the first time. What did people learn in 2020? Buy anything and you're immediately rewarded. And by the way, the riskier the thing you bought, the higher the reward was in 2020, right? Everything went went straight up, but crypto and profitless companies and SPACs, those went up the fastest. 2021 to 2022, exact opposite of that. Anything you buy, you are losing money on. And the riskier the thing you buy, the faster that you lose money on. So it's natural for people to look back what's what happened and say, oh, I bought Zoom in 2020 and now I'm down 70%. That was a, a terrible decision. Well, the truth is we don't know if that is a terrible decision yet because the pandemic has so introduced so much volatility into not only the businesses themselves, but the valuations of the companies uh, themselves. Buying Zoom in 2020 might prove to be a really smart decision five years from now, but we won't know the answer. All we know is that over the last 18 months or two years, it's felt horrible to own that company. How do you personally like get over that? Because it's hard. I mean, it's. I think if you ask anybody, they'll be like, this is a really hard question to answer. But how do you differentiate between signal, I made a good decision versus noise? The market's telling me I made a bad decision, but it might actually be a good decision. How do you counterbalance that idea? The way I do that is by looking at the companies themselves and looking at the earnings reports of the companies. So again, let's just stick on Zoom for a second there. Zoom stock is, last I checked, down like 70% from its peak. If that was your only information, what would you assume was happening with Zoom's earnings reports? You would assume that revenue is going down, margins are collapsing, and profits are going down. I think it would surprise a lot of people to realize that Zoom's revenue is up 
over the last two years. Zoom is literally a stronger business today uh, than it was two years ago. But the since the stock price is down so much, the narrative is easy to look at and to be like, oh, Zoom, the business must be falling apart. Uh, in reality, Zoom was never really designed for the consumer market like me and you. It was always built for the enterprise market. And the company continues to make progress at penetrating the enterprise market, rolling out new products and growing its revenue stream in there. The problem is they also had this massive unexpected revenue boom from the consumer market that is currently unwinding. And that unwinding is masking the core growth of the business. So how do you deal with that as an investor? One, you have to understand that's how markets work. That is just how markets work. If you're going to invest in individual stocks, you have to be willing to put up with huge swings in prices. And that is just the price of admission. Take any of the greatest stocks of all time, any of them, every single one, at least once, but likely multiple times has fallen 50% or more peak to trough. Every single one. Like we're talking about like Coca-Cola, Procter and Gamble, Berkshire Hathaway, the biggest, most boring companies ever have all fallen 50% peak to trough. If you just don't have the stomach for that, don't invest in individual stocks. Just keep your money in safer securities. And there's nothing wrong with not having the stomach uh, for that. The thing that you get in trouble with is when you tell yourself that you have the <laughs> stomach for that when you're in a bull market and then you only realize you don't have the stomach for that when a bear market finally shows up. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. I think you see that too with the S&P 500 in general. I mean, you would think, oh, a basket of 500 stocks, it must be really safe. But no, if you can't stomach even the S&P 500 going down, you should not be in the stock market. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. I mean, I'm pulling up a chart right now of the S&P 500. I mean, I'm in, I remember investing in the markets in, in 2008 and peak to trough, the S&P 500 fell 57%. From 2007 yeah, to 2009. I mean, that is the entire market falling 57% over like an 18-month uh, period. And that is owning 500 of the biggest, most profitable, best businesses in the world, a very diversified basket. So yeah, this is why stock investing is not for everybody. That's so true. I think I'd like to kind of segue to the Buffett checklist because I think based on what we're talking about, I think talking about maybe some of the ways that he looks for companies might be a good way to help investors kind of understand the importance of fundamentals and kind of getting away from some of the story stuff. I guess, what are your thoughts on, you created this cool chart that kind of shows a checklist that ideas based on how Warren Buffett picks his companies. Can we kind of talk a little bit about that? Sure. Buffett, if you read through Buffett's letters, he's very upfront about his investing style, what he looks for. And by and large, when I think about what Warren Buffett is trying to do, he is essentially trying to comb through the market for predictable, profitable, wide most businesses that he thinks still have a bright future ahead. Then he's trying to value those businesses conservatively. Then he's trying to buy those businesses at a discount to his idea of intrinsic value. That is the Buffett style of investing. And doing that is not easy uh, for one reason, because it requires long periods of inactivity followed by short bursts of hyperactivity. 
That's easy to say to do in hindsight, really hard to do that in real time. So yeah, I found a checklist online that just ticks off a couple of the tenets that Buffett goes through uh, before he makes an investment. I'm just a huge believer in checklists uh, when you're making investment decisions because they can really help you from uh, make sure you think through all aspects of a business. So th- there are nine on here. I'll just tick them off really fast. Number one is the business understandable classic Buffett thing, right? Do you know the business and can you explain it? And he's very famous for saying, if I can't understand it, pass, just move on to the next idea. Uh, number two, do you know how the money is made? AKA, do you understand the business model? Number three, does the business have a consistent operating history? The consistent part there is really key. He doesn't want to buy businesses that boom, that print money in good times and then lose money in bad times. He wants to own things that make money in all market cycles. Number four, does the company have favorable long-term prospects? Number five, is there a big moat around the business? Number six, is it a business that even a dummy could make money in? I can't add the old, right? (laughs) You want a business so good that even an idiot running it will still do well. Number seven, can the company, can current operations be maintained without too much uh, needing to be spent, aka are the returns on capital are really good? Number eight, can the company, is the company free to adjust prices to inflation? So it's not regulated from a pricing perspective. And number nine, interestingly, have you read the annual reports of its main competitors to find out what its competitors think of the company? And I love the, the simplicity of it. And it's just the consistent process applied over and over again is really what makes Buffett Buffett. Yeah, that's that's right on the money. I love the idea, the last one of reading competitors. I think so many times we as investors focus so much on what PayPal is doing that we don't think about what the other companies in their sector are doing. And that, that could be really important, not only to that, but sometimes you can find a better business than PayPal by looking at competitors. For certain. And again, I think number nine is a pretty in-depth thing. That level of depth and knowledge about the industry totally makes sense if you're going to do what Buffett does, which again, when Buffett finds an idea, he pounces on it and he's not afraid to put billions upon billions of dollars into that idea at one time. So he needs to have an extremely high certainty about the near-term prospects of that business before he makes an investment. So I like how you're giving a lot of context for people because... You know, there's a lot of different beginner mistakes that we can make. And one of those would be to follow your favorite investor blindly without understanding the context of actually how they invest and if that's going to work for you. I mean, one of the examples I like, like if you listen to the podcast at all, I talk about Peer Lynch all the time. I feel like his books are so great for just getting your feet wet in the stock market. But am I going to invest with Peter Lynch or am I going to invest like Peter Lynch did? Well, by the way, he turned over his portfolio something like 150% per year, which means in any given year, he's selling as like more positions than he's buying and continuing to just recycle those positions. So in the case of Buffett, do you think for, I guess, a couple ways you could think about it? Do you think the average person should try to emulate his approach? And I guess... If not, why? Or if yes, why? I think the first thing that people should do before they make any investment is ask themselves an important question that many people just skip over, which is, when do I need the money for this investment? A lot of people just skip to, I heard fill in the blank investment or cryptocurrency was good. And to them, good means is going to go up in the next three months. And then they buy that investment with doing very little or some research. If you're going to be investing 
in the stock market. You shouldn't have any capital in the stock market that you need for your life in the next five years or perhaps even longer. So step one is asking yourself, when do I expect, when do I need this company uh, to pay off? If it's for a down payment on a house in 18 months from now, don't put that money mm-hmm. in the stock market. You might do well, but you're just taking on way too much risk that uh, stock market valuations could fall or that investment might play out. And then suddenly your life is severely impacted because you can't buy the house that you want. So first question to ask is, when do you need the money? If the answer is five plus years from now, then you could think about investing in the stock market. And the next thing you need to do is define what type of investments do you want? Warren Buffett is managing hundreds of billions of dollars, and he is very content to buy highly predictable dividend-paying companies at low valuations so that he can earn a modest return, let's call it 8 to 15%, something like there with a high degree of certainty and hold those businesses for a long period of time. That is his investing style. If you're going to invest like that, invest like a value uh, investor and you're going after those kind of returns, it makes total sense to copy exactly what he is doing. If you're the type of investor that is interested in high growth businesses and you're willing to take on a lot more risk in exchange for the potential at much higher returns or you're looking for companies that can multiply your capital many times over, then copying Buffett and focusing on valuation is the wrong thing to do. You're just using a completely different set of tools and mindsets to buy stocks that Warren Buffett isn't interested in or will never uh, own at all. So I think Buffett is worth studying no matter what type of investor you are, but you have to pick and choose which lessons of his you apply depending on what type of investor you are. So how do people decide what kind of investor they are? Well, you can do that in (laughs) theory, right? It's easy to be to tell yourself you're one type of investor, but all investing styles have positives and negatives to you. And if you're going to pick an investing style, you can't have the positives without also having uh, the negatives uh, that come along with that investing style. If you want to be, I myself am primarily a high growth, high quality business focused investors. I'm personally not interested in dividends. I'm willing to give up dividends. I'm willing to give up uh, short term volatility and valuation in exchange for higher business growth. So the trade-off that I'm willing to make with my investing style is I want the potential to earn multi-bagger returns in exchange for dealing with higher levels of volatility and a higher failure rate. Conversely, I know other investors that are just after dividends. The only thing they want is income from their investments today. And they're looking at companies that have three, four, five percent dividend yields. If that's what you're after, near term income, know that the thing that you're giving up to get there is growth potential. A lot of the companies that have very high dividend yields have very meager or perhaps even negative uh, growth potential. So the way that you figure out what type of invest you are is you, you make a guess, you apply that investing style. And then once you have to pay the consequences of that investing style, <laughs> ask yourself, honestly, as best you can, am I really this type of investor? But the only way to figure that out is to put capital on the line, feel the consequences of your decisions and reflect. Yeah, it's such a hard thing to figure out. And especially because, again, businesses are dynamic and so is the market. So depending on what time period you are wading in to the stock market, a certain style could do a lot better than a different style. And it's like, 
it doesn't mean one style is better than the other. It just means at that particular period of time, the market rewarded this or that. So it does make it really, really hard. And, you know, I struggle to think about how can you answer that question? Somebody's like, what's your risk tolerance? And it's like, well, I don't want to take risk, but I also want high return. It's, it's, it's really <laughs> yeah. hard to kind of figure out for people when they're first starting out. But I like that approach that you're talking about. It doesn't need to... The last thing you probably want to do is be so rigid to say, I'm just going to stay this way for the rest of my investing life. I don't think there's going to be much growth in that. If you're listening to Investing for Beginners, then you probably care about money and learning how to make a good relationship with your finances. Everyone's Talking Money is hosted by money wellness expert and certified financial planner, Shauna Geem. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money. Hear about the money topics you need to know, such as ways to train your brain to reach money goals, why you should ditch your budget and start tracking your cash, and everything you need to know about paying off student loans. Simple steps to start investing as a side hustle, ways to invest in rental real estate, how to overcome money trauma, and so much more. With over 900 episodes, there's a show for any and every money question you have. I'm a big fan of Shauna's as well. She has a relatable style and soothing voice that takes some of the stress surrounding money. Shauna really speaks to the listener and never ends in an episode without actionable tips. I recently listened to the episode, Stop Stressing Over Your Money, a simple budgeting solution, where she talks about her simple, easy one, two, three system for budgeting. It helped me a lot. Are you ready to learn everything about money that no one has taught you? Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to eat dessert every day and not gain weight, but that's not how it works. (laughs) Exactly. I know. I want to eat pizza every day, but that's not the way it works. (laughs) Yeah. And be healthy, but that's just not how it works, right? No. No, it isn't. So where does um, learning financial statements happen in your opinion? Um, we're, We're kind of talking, you know, you have the more conservative, lower growth businesses. You have the more higher range of outcomes, higher growth businesses. Should investors learn financial statements, whether they're looking at either or? What's your take on kind of picking up financial statements and and trying to figure those out? Yeah, accounting can be a really dry and boring topic. But if you're going to invest in individual stocks, it's to me, it's not even a, a negotiable. You must understand accounting and you must understand the nuances of accounting. Accounting is not a perfectly straightforward uh, thing. There is a lot of uh, interpretation and a lot of art that goes into not only creating uh, financial statements, but also reading and interpreting uh, financial uh, statements. Warren Buffett has this great quote, which I'm going to buff, which I'm going to butcher, but it's something like accounting is the language of business. If you aren't willing to learn the language of business, you have no business picking individual stocks uh, yourself. And to me, that's true. If you're a growth investor, if you're a dividend investor, if you're a value investor, if you're a venture capitalist, doesn't matter what type of investor you are. If you're going to buy individual stocks or invest in real estate or, or private businesses, you have to learn how accounting works. It tells a story. And it's our job to learn how to read that language so we can understand the story. That's what I love about what you do with your Twitter feed and what you're doing with your your course and everything is you're trying to help people understand the language of that. Can you talk a little bit about your course? Because I think that's something that I think is very important for people to know. 
Sure. So me and my business partners, who are both named Brian, uh, by the way, created a live cohort-based course where over the course, over a period of three weeks, uh, we walk new investors through the three uh, financial statements. So the income statement, the balance sheet, and the cash flow statement. And we show not only the layouts of them and uh, what the terms mean, but how a business goes about to generate them. And importantly, how investors should in- interpret them. When you are first starting out investing, Learning to read financial statements seems overwhelming. I mean, there are all these terms on there and it looks like like there's numbers on there and they're up and down. The good news is accounting isn't hard once it's explained to you uh, well, but uh, sitting down and taking the time to actually learn them can take a bit of time. So what's cool is today, it's never been easier to learn accounting on your own for free. There are tons of wonderful resources online, like YouTube uh, videos, podcasts you can listen to, where you can learn accounting in extreme detail if you want to. What we've discovered is that there's a big group of people out there who want to learn in a more formalized classroom setting, so that way they can ask questions and have uh, homework and practice. And that's kind of what we that's kind of what we do in our course. So you can learn all, all the information that we teach is available online for free. But there are some people people that do want to learn in a more in an actual classroom setting, a virtual classroom setting with a community. And that's what we created. And I guarantee based on just the energy that Brian's bringing today, it's not going to be the same boring thing that I had to sit through when I was in college. I guarantee you that that was that was put the head on the table, take a nap kind of education. So I know that what the three Brian's are bringing is way different. One of the things that I really like about you, Brian, is you come at everything from a teacher's mindset, like you want to help people and you want to help teach people. Patrick O'Shaughnessy had this fantastic question on Twitter a while back that we kind of posed to each other and we're going to, I'd like to pose it to you too. So if you could pick three, any three companies to help teach finance, excluding Berkshire Hathaway, who would those three be? That's a really interesting question that you came up with. And I did do some time to thinking about it. So the three that I came up with were AutoZone, Salesforce.com and Tesla. And I'll tell you why I picked those. So first I would start with AutoZone because AutoZone is a very simple business, right? They have stores, you go to their stores and they sell auto parts and their financial statements are very clean and easy to read. So it's just an easy business to interpret. But what's fascinating about AutoZone from a studying perspective is here you have a modest moat business, a decent brand name that so many people know, but this company has uh, plowed a tremendous amount of its profits into stock buybacks. And this is like a textbook uh, case study of how to do stock buybacks the right way. AutoZone stock has been a fabulous, fabulous long-term investment, uh, not only because the company is a good operator of these stores, but because its management team has has done wonders with the shareholder capital to reduce the share count and really drive the earnings per share higher through stock buybacks. So I think it's a wonderful business to study because it's simple, easy to understand, and it shows that management's choices can lead to shareholder value when done the right way. Another one that more interesting would be salesforce.com, which is a good case study in kind of modern businesses. Not only is it a software company with high margins, not only does it have a disruptive product, but it has 
made good uses of acquisitions uh, for the last uh, 20, 20 years. And it's done so while acquiring tech companies for very high valuations. And normally that is a recipe for disaster uh, in the public markets because making acquisitions is hard and making acquisitions that work when you're paying big premiums is really hard. Yet salesforce.com has actually done so while creating a lot of shareholder value along the way. And it in many ways is like the exact opposite of AutoZone. It's a complex business. Its financials are very confusing. It has diluted shareholders like crazy over the last 20 years. And yet investors have done very well from owning its stock. So it's like an exact opposite of AutoZone. And the third one was Tesla because Tesla has broken so many business rules and it's such a, I've heard it called a mutant company before. And I think there's no better way to describe <laughs> a company, but Tesla is a really good case study of the importance of the CEO telling the market a story and that story ending up creating huge amounts of shareholder of value. By the way, there's nothing wrong with telling a story about a company. Every company out there uh, tells a story. But I would say that no company out there has done a better job of creating a narrative and using that narrative to to raise capital and potentially change the world than Tesla. I'm just waiting for you, Brian. I mean, you have a pretty big Twitter account. So if you saw Elon Musk, their marketing budget for Tesla is basically his Twitter account. Um, (laughs) Why can't you make your own, right? Yeah, exactly. Maybe that'll be my next act. Yeah, could create a company off of my Twitter account. Yeah. Now we all have the playbook. Just do exactly what Elon's done over the last uh, 20 years, for better or worse. I'm not sure I could take that much hate. My psychology could take the amount of hate that he's gotten, though. <laughs> yeah. He's definitely got thick skin for sure. Oh, for sure. I, I would love to hear Dave's uh, three companies and, and his wise. Oh, gosh. All right. So I went with Visa, went with GE, and I went with Amazon. So Visa, I the reason I chose Visa was because it was a, a disruptor in its time, and it changed basically how people operate on a day-to-day basis because of the way the company, what they do, the the way we spend our money is vastly different now. 50 years later because of Visa and it continues to evolve. Their financials are very, very clean, just like AutoZones. And it's super easy to understand. Once you understand the business model, it doesn't change. And they haven't had to change in 40 or 50 years and hopefully not for another 40 or 50 years because I do own the company. So probably just put a jinx on it. But that's, you know, so, so, so that's why I like that. GE, I think, is the perfect example of a company going wrong and how you can see a company go wrong over a long period of time from bad management to bad decisions to taking on too much debt to trying to change what the business was. And, and now they're trying to all, you know, unwind all that and go back and who knows whether they'll get, be able to get it done. It's a great, I think, example of people can't see my hand, but it's a great example of the evolution of a business cycle from a young company to a mature company to a declining company. You can kind of see all those patterns through its history of the financials. So that's why I chose GE. And then uh, Amazon, I think is just a great example of kind of like Tesla where Jeff Bezos had an idea and a story that he wanted to tell. And it was all about innovation and free cash flow and and customer service. And just those basically three simple ideas, he was so fanatical about them, he created this monster that is Amazon. And now it's become such a, a dominant force in the markets now that anytime they threaten to go into a business, all of a sudden that industry craters for a couple of weeks until people realize that, oh, hey, maybe they aren't going to disrupt the grocery market. But 
You know, it's just they've de- developed such a reputation for that. I, I just think it's a, a great case study of how a CEO with a simple a couple simple ideas and execution can really disrupt the markets and really create a, a powerhouse. Love that. Yeah. Amazon, a total another mutant company, right? Yeah. Uh, what it's done over the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Andrew, what were yours? Yeah, I, mean, I did uh, Circuit City for the bankruptcy just to show growth doesn't mean success. I did Coca-Cola as an idea of a business doesn't need to reinvent the wheel and it could be a very old idea and still do very, very well. And then Tesla as the power of capitalism and how if you're able to raise money and dilute shares and, and just raise a lot of capital and what what can be done in the debt market and, and how that's created you know, it's changed our world. It really has. I don't think that'll ever go away. And that's, that's, I think, what's exciting about investing in the stock market is there's people involved and they're creating really amazing things. And a lot of it does make our world for the better. Love it. So, Brian, we really appreciate you coming on. You mentioned your course. What is that called and how can people learn more about it? Sure. Well, thank you again for having me. Hope to be back for a four-peat sometime soon. The course, if you're interested, is called uh, Financial Statements uh, Explained uh, Simply. Uh, You can get that by signing up for my uh, newsletter, which is just at brianferaldi.com. Each week, we email out uh, once a week. uh, We do a short email where we talk about an investing lesson that we've learned. So it's uh, free to sign up. So that's just brianferaldi.com. You're also on Twitter and YouTube as well. So talk about that. Where can they find you at Twitter and YouTube? Sure. Both my name, Brian Feraldi, uh, B-R-I-N-F-E-R-O-L-D-I. Yeah, I, I'm on Twitter. Twitter is the platform I am the most active on and more recently become really active on LinkedIn of all places. So you can find me there too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, we do thank you very much for the three Pete and we enjoyed talking to you today. You're a great teacher and you're a great resource for people that want to learn more about the stock market and, and other things as well. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.